0: gresham college presents money mania the south sea bubble by professor john m pick practically the whole of england uh, at the beginning of 1720 with a few exceptions that we shall name thought that investing money in the south sea uh, company was an admirable idea by the end of 1720 they were pretty nearly all equally sure that the people who had run the company were rogues and vagabonds, and, as you shall see, um, some of them indeed were sent to the Tower, which is a terrible warning, I suppose, for anyone engaged in speculative ventures today. So what was the South Sea Bubble? It started, quietly, and in a perfectly reasonable way, in 1711, when the national debt had grown very large, and in particular, um, the outgoing, dismissed Whig government had left behind a particularly large debt of some £10 million uh, associated with expenditures on the armed forces. A company, at the start, without a name, of merchants many of the most eminent uh, politicians and merchants and um, leaders of industry in the land came together to form a company whose sole aim at the start was to (coughs) restore public credit. What in effect that company did was to um, float themselves on the market and uh, put in their own funds and get funds from other people so that they in essence, took the government's debt over and paid um, some of the the people who were owed money by the government and in return, of course, the government of the day paid them some 6% on the loan that they'd secured from this new company. So it was, right at the start, a, a financial arrangement, which is not uncommon and um, was entirely honourable. The government paid 6% per annum on the £10 million in loan that they'd secured from this new company, and the government in its turn raised that 6%, that £600,000 each year, by imposing additional duties, as ever, on wine, tobacco, silks, Indian goods, and various luxury items on the market. But the government, because they were grateful to have this money taken from, uh, uh, from uh, the, the, them, also gave a monopoly of trade in the South Seas to this new company, which had announced that it wished, as well as being purely um, a financial uh, uh, affair, to carry on trading and to trade to the advantage Um, of its uh, members. This monopoly of trade to the South Seas was arranged by Harley, the Earl of Oxford, and that has always since been regarded, been known popularly as the Earl of Oxford's masterpiece. And once that had been arranged, the company which had tried to uh, uh, simply... um, deal with the government's debt, became in the popular uh, terminology the South Sea Company, and it was incorporated under that name by Act of Parliament. And in the public mind, it was at once associated much more with the South Seas than with its purely financial arrangements here at home. Well, why did a monopoly of trade to the South Seas matter? Why was it a a generous gesture of the Earl of Oxford to arrange for this new company to have it? It was because in the popular imagination and indeed in, in serious tracts which were published over here, the lands around the eastern coast of South America were popularly supposed to be inexhaustibly wealthy the gold and silver mines of Peru and Mexico were in particular supposed to be almost bottomless. And it was felt that one had only got to send the British manufacturers out there to those lands for them to be repaid at least a hundredfold by the grateful natives with the uh, gold and silver which was apparently lying beneath every sod. But There was also a rumour, and it was no more than a rumour, that the the Spaniards, who in fact controlled the ports along that sea, were also willing to give the British complete trading rights in those ports, to send their ships in and out, in other words, to take out the gold and silver and other precious goods um, from the South Seas. So, in the popular imagination, this was opening up a magnificent new market, a magnificent opportunity. And so, simultaneously, uh, when it was formed, the South Sea Company was seen as a a saviour of government because they had, as it were, privatised its debt, and also a, a magnificent enterprise to put your money into. Yet, right from the start... In fact, the trading aspect of the South Sea Company was very slight indeed. Philip V of Spain had, it would seem, absolutely no intention of ceding four or even three ports to Britain for British use and, in fact, he had expressly forbidden British vessels to go in and out of the ports along the South Sea coast. And in protracted negotiations between England and Spain, between 1711, when the company was set up, and 1717, the only agreement, in fact, they came to was that slaves could, in fact, be exported in British ships from those ports, and that under very tight conditions. And eventually, in 1717, the... Spaniards agreed that one ship a year could go in to their ports and take out um, such precious metals as had been purchased by the South Sea Company. And in fact, only one ship ever did go in the South Sea Company's name in 1717 because uh, the following year, Uh, Yet another row between England and Spain meant that the king forbade even that. And so, in effect, there was virtually no trade. But this didn't get into the public consciousness. Crowds sometimes don't want to see the obvious, and they didn't on that occasion. And in fact, in that same year of 1717, the South Sea Company prayed to Parliament that their stock, should be increased from the 10 million, which they'd raised to pay off the government's debt six years before, uh, to 12 million. And this, indeed, was granted by a grateful parliament. They were, in effect, therefore, a monetary corporation. The picture of them as dealing with South Sea ports and having access to the great mineral wealth of Peru and Mexico was a popular myth. And one's bound to say that it was one assiduously fostered by the company because although they were, in fact, simply carrying on financial affairs, they did their best to constantly put stories into the paper and stories around London of new finds of great wealth, new agreements with Spain about ships being allowed to go in, new uh, and, and highly lucrative trading arrangements being made with Peru and so on, but none of it, in fact, ever came to anything. And yet, public confidence in them, once established, didn't waver. And early in in 1720, the company was able to go back and take over another large segment of the national debt. This time, they proposed to take 30 million pounds off the government's back. That is, they proposed to raise more capital for paying off the government's creditors and in return they asked government to pay them at 5% for guaranteeing the repayment of those loans. That was later reduced to 4% when their rivals, actually the Bank of England, also made an offer. But eventually um, the South Sea Company got the job and they took over uh, uh, another £30 million of the national debt. As one politician observed, we have put the wealth of the country now entirely in private hands. Their stock on the exchange rose overnight on the 2nd of February when they were given permission to take over this further part of the national debt. It had been trading at... 130, that is uh, 100 pounds invested, where uh, the shares were being sold for 130 pounds. It rose to 300 overnight, um, uh, uh, triple return on any capital investment people had made. And the parliamentary debate, which went on wondering about whether they should, in fact, permit the South Sea. Company to continue to take over segments of the National debate, which went on for, for, for two months. While that was going on, the stock continued steadily to rise, and it wasn't long before it was up to about 330, a return of uh, more than uh, three on any investment you had made in them. And in Parliament, there were many voices, of course, speaking for the South Sea Company, Many voices speaking for the kind of yuppieism, I suppose, of of the day. One that did not, interestingly, was Walpole. And he said something which I suppose could be made to seem um, applicable to many later uh, bubbles in, in the market. He spoke in the House of the dangerous practice of stock jobbing which will divert the nation, he said, from real trade and industry. It will hold out a dangerous lure to decoy the unwary to their ruin by making them part with their honest earnings for a prospect of imaginary wealth. This principle is evil. It raises artificially the value of stock by exciting and keeping up a general infatuation and by promising dividends out of funds which will never be adequate for the purpose, said Walpole. If it succeeds, he finished, the stock market will run the nation. But if it fails, as it will, it will bring massive discontent. But he was something of a voice in the wilderness. Demand for investment shares in the um, company continued to rise and the stock, in fact, towards the end of the period of debate rose to 400. Parliament rushed the bill through to give the South Sea Company control over the 30 millions of their debt. The parliamentary majority in the House of Commons was 172 to 55. When it went to the Lords, though again there were some voices against it, the majority was even more vehement, 83 in favour and only 17 against, giving the company this new power. And the speed that it went through the House of Lords was astonishing in 1720. On the 4th of April... There was the first reading of the bill. On the 5th of April, the second reading. On the 6th of April, it was committed. And on the 7th of April, the third and final reading. And it became law. A matter of great speed. And then, once it was law, of course, excitement knew no bounds. Millions were given to buy the steadily increasing stock of this marvellous South Sea company. Exchange Alley, where the jobbing and the broking was done, was packed each day. London's hotels and boarding houses and inns were packed with people who'd galloped here from the country to invest their savings. Stories abounded of people who had given up, sold up their little farms or their houses or their lands or goods, simply to raise some capital to get shares in the new company. The papers of the day are packed with stories of even foreigners who had come over here to invest in this great British company. A popular rhyme of the day pointed out that it wasn't only men, but the greatest ladies thither came and plied in chariots daily, or panned their jewels for a sum to venture in the alley. It doesn't rhyme, but it's an interesting point. Well, so for three or four days, great excitement. The hours of, the, uh, of dealing in Exchange Alley were uh, increased, and then, just after the third reading in the House of Lords, the first tremor, on the 7th, uh, The stock had stood at 310. On the 8th, it had dropped to 290. What was happening was that all those people who had invested at the beginning of the boom, at the beginning of the year, were beginning to think that they'd get out now and take their profits. So they were selling. But too many of them were selling, and the purchasing price couldn't hold up. But the company, quite openly, there were no actual laws against doing this sort of thing, deliberately sent out rumourmongers, paid rumourmongers, round the city to spread stories of new treaties with Spain, new finds of gold and silver in Mexico and Peru. And a series throughout April of new offers was made by the directors to keep the flow of cash coming in. They, on the 12th of April they offered a fixed and guaranteed return of 300 pounds for every 100 pounds that was now invested afresh with them. And that was to be in five repayments of 60 pounds each, the first to be given immediately, which, as you will see, is a rather odd way of dealing with it because it, in effect, means that you just gave them 50 pounds. And this was so popular that 2 million was raised in two days. From the general investments. And that summer, uh, just towards the end of April, it was announced there was to be a dividend, a further dividend of 10% on all monies invested under whatever terms. And then they offered a bigger uh, bargain to the next set of investors. The next people who put £100 in were to be given £400 back in units of £50. And the company raised a further million and a half in three or four days like that. In other words, money was moving, to put it very crudely, faster than it had ever done before. Nobody saw uh, any further advantage in holding goods, uh, assets like houses and farms and so on. It all had to be invested in this splendid new conceit in the exchange. And the South Sea Company headed a really remarkable um, explosion of small companies that were rapidly put together, were rapidly conceived on almost any pretext and for almost any purpose. It was very easy then to get a, a patent on any particular idea or whatever. And uh, they made their invest. they, they urged investment in them for all kinds of reasons, almost always got the money. The wise put the money in, waited till it had gone up over a couple of days a little and drew it out again. Uh, Some companies lasted uh, three or four days, some a week, some a fortnight. And some were really quite extraordinary. Um, There was, uh, for example, one wonderful adventurer who announced that a new company was to be formed on a Monday morning. It is, and I quote, a company for carrying on an undertaking of great advantage, but nobody to know what it is. (laughs) And that, he announced, would eventually be revealed. What you had to do was to subscribe a hundred pounds. But, as he realized that you didn't yet know what the company's advantage was to be. Uh, You were only to give two pounds. Then, when um, the company's higher purpose was revealed in a month's time, you were to pay the remaining 98. But you were to be certainly um, one of the uh, investors and, and, and down as such with that company. Well... The company lasted four days. Crowds of people gathered round the man when he set the company up on the Monday morning. And in five hours on the first day, he had made 2,000 pounds from people giving two pounds. He made about the second sum on the second day. On the third day, uh, he didn't appear because... He took the 4,000 pounds and lived the life of a gentleman in Paris for the rest of his days. Thus, the great advantage was eventually made clear to everybody. <laughs> it was a great advantage to him. But the gullible still flocked, and mixed in with the gullible were the people who were cynically playing the stock exchange in that extraordinary summer. As observers remarked, at one end of Exchange Alley, a company could be being quoted a 10% difference from at the other. You could actually make a fortune by walking the right way down the street, investing and then selling um, at the advantageous rates. And it became a mania. Some interesting points about it are that the newspapers of the day, though they were very loud at the end of the whole madness in condemning public gu- gullibility, in fact contributed to it. Most of the people writing in the papers wrote of the wisdom of the investors who could see that they were on a good thing. Uh, and they wrote warmly about the shrewd business skills of all the people who were flocking into town to give their money to the the new companies that were surrounding the bubble company. But plainly, the government started to get worried. And on the 12th of July in that summer, at the council chamber in Whitehall, the Lord's Justices in Council gathered to try to put a stop to it. Not, of course, a stop to the South Sea Company, that was a a major patriotic venture, but to the smaller companies which had been set up um, in the wake of its success, the little bubble companies. And on the 12th of July in 1720, they issued the following proclamation. Their excellencies, the Lords Justices, in council, taking into consideration the many inconveniences arising to the public from several projects set on foot for raising of joint stock for various purposes, and that a great many of His Majesty's subjects have been drawn in to part with their money on pretense of assurances that their petitions for patents and characters to enable them to carry on the same would be granted. To prevent such impositions, their excellencies have this day ordered that these petitions be banned forthwith. And they then proceeded to list um, a considerable number, 18, of companies that were trying at that very moment to set themselves up on various pretexts and, to, and were claiming that they would be given sole rights or patents for. Kinds, all kinds of, uh, of, of 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 ventures, which were plainly designed to um, take money from people. There is a list of the 18, and it includes, for example, a company which wished to um, get a subscription of more than a million to set up a whale fishery. Another, which was um, for the insurance of all sick people throughout the United Kingdom. Another was for a a good new method of making sails for ships. It's not clear what the method was. A dealer in timber wished to uh, be permitted to raise uh, half a million in capital for making boards out of sawdust... Quite prophetic, I mean, that actually happened later on. (coughs) Joseph Galindo of London uh, wished to raise the same sum of money to set up a series of factories for preparing snuff by a curious new method. Well, all of these they simply said they wouldn't ever give patents to but they then went on in the more interesting part of the document to actually outlaw trading by all the minor bubble companies i repeat they didn't touch the south sea company but here we got a list in, in the same document of uh, almost 100 uh, uh, 88 uh, companies which were trading in london that summer mm-hmm. which the lord's justices um, declared to be one way and another fraudulent, and they banned them from training uh, from trading. I'm sorry. Now, of course, I can't go through them all, but uh, the one which was uh, simply uh, setting up an, adver- an undertaking of great advantage, but nobody to know what it is, was there. so was one for paving the streets of London, capital two million, another for furnishing funerals to any part of Great Britain. For buying and selling lands generally, capital 5 million. For carrying on fishing, 10 million. For assuring of seamen's wages. For purchasing and improving land. (laughs) We seem to have heard that one too recently. Um, 4 millions. For the clothing and pants trade. For the purchasing and improving a manor in Essex, (laughs) presumably a private one. For a grand dispensary, capital three millions. For improving the art of making soap. For making glass bottles in Derbyshire, for some reason. For improving of gardens. For ensuring and increasing children's fortunes. For the improvement of tillage and the breed of cattle, for insuring horses, for erecting houses, for taking in and maintaining illegitimate children, capital four million, for improving salt and finally getting a little near the old alchemy for the transmutation of quicksilver into a malleable and useful fine metal. Well, they were all banned, but it didn't stop, of course, the other sort of uh, training, uh, the other sort of trading, which was going on at the top end of the market. And the uh, South Sea bubble company uh, continued to thrive, in spite of the fact that the smaller companies that were mimicking it, if you like, um, were now being regarded as being wicked and beyond the law. By the 29th of May, the uh, stock which, um, for the, the repayment rather, on, on £100 invested was £500 each share. By the 3rd of June, it was again fascinating to see another tremor. It started the day, the value of the stock, the 3rd of June, at 890 It ended the day at 640. And on this occasion, interestingly, a second technique with which we have later become familiar. The directors of the company didn't on that occasion order their rumourmongers out into the streets to reassure people that trade would soon be um, booming with Spanish cooperation or that new finds of valuable objects had been made the directors on this occasion sent agents out into the markets to buy their own stock. And it rallied. And by the beginning of August in that year, it was back up to what was to be its last high, 750. But of course, by that time, people who had held on to their... um, shares in the company were beginning to feel that it could hardly. Indeed, by the 29th of September, it was down to 135. And um, by the time the uh, month was over, and we were just into October, the shares were being quoted at less than um, their original value, somewhere in the uh, 90s. And so what Smollett called tasteless vice and mean degeneracy uh, began to take over. And in the next couple of weeks, the South Sea Company virtually collapsed. People who had rushed to sell now found that they had virtually nothing left to sell. Ruin faced tens of thousands of large, and small investors. And of course, the government, which was plainly in danger itself of being discredited, turned its vengeance upon the directors, whom it had, of course, praised to the skies uh, not many months before for their public spiritedness and fine sense of values. Public meetings were held throughout the land in which rather dangerous. Uh, demands for vengeance began to be heard. And in answer to them, and in answer to threats which were made upon the lives of the directors of the South Sea Company, the House of Commons, on the 9th of December of that year, set up an inquiry into the activities of the South Sea Company to discover whether there had, in fact, been... Um, a deliberate desire to defraud the public. And pretty obviously the, the conclusion was rapidly abroad that there had. Um, they found it difficult to investigate the books of the company because the treasurer, Knight, um, actually fled the country and almost immediately a reward of £2,000 was offered for his recovery and his return to this country. He wasn't returned. Again, it strikes as though it's getting on for three centuries ago as as an extraordinarily modern thing, because though he was apprehended, he was apprehended in fact by the British representative in Brussels and um, imprisoned in Antwerp on the continent. Um, He was apprehended in a country which prided itself upon giving sanctuary to criminals from other lands, so he couldn't be extradited and brought here to justice. And in any case, before discussions between the British government and the authorities in Brussels had gone very far, he escaped anyway and got out of his prison in rather dubious, by rather dubious means and so wasn't brought here to justice. But Parliament set up its own um, court to hear the cases of the directors and to decide upon appropriate punishment for them. Because from the books that they were able to get, um, they discovered that, in fact, there had been large movements of entirely fictitious sums of money designed to bolster the public confidence in their accounts and dealing and they discovered of course that all their talk of the possibility of trade opening up on the South Sea was uh, quite fraudulent. They'd never had a ghost of a chance of a serious agreement uh, with Spain or any of the other countries involved. So the directors one by one were brought before the bar of the House of, of, of Commons and there in effect tried by the Inquiry group. Crowds gathered in London once more. The same people, one imagines, who had flocked to London to invest in the company a few months before now gathered demanding retribution um, for the uh, directors who were being tried. They crammed Westminster around the house um, and they crammed the uh, corridors of the House of Commons to hear each verdict, and the first person to be dealt with, Stanhope, was in fact acquitted, and the com- the country came dangerously close to riot. There were a number of attacks on public buildings made by furious people who couldn't see why uh, a man so as it seemed so obviously guilty as he, should be let off by the house. I don't imagine for one moment this affected the way that they looked at the second case, a slave, but he was um, in fact found guilty, the second person to come before them. And he was ordered to make good from his own estates his proportionate um, Uh, his part of of the eventual huge debt which uh, the collapse of the company had left. In other words, his own lands and his own fortune were very largely forfeit to uh, the uh, commons um, so that they could begin to build up um, assets once more and make some repayments to investors. And he was also sent for a year in the Tower of London prison, close imprisonment, they said, remembering perhaps that Knight had a few weeks before escaped from a prison. When the verdict was announced, it was announced at 12.30, in the middle of the night, London became illuminated, it is said. People switched on their lights, lit bonfires outside and danced in the streets for joy because a director had been sent to the slammer. The next Caswell was also sent to the tower and was ordered to refund a quarter of a million from his own fortune and estates. Sunderland, the next, was acquitted but then others were um, equally made to uh, cough up huge amounts of money to restore something to the company's coffers. Sir John Blunt, a man who of course was well known, Pope wrote about him for his, his own condemnation of the vice of others, had only £5,000 left out of his personal fortune of £183,000. Sir John Fellows, £10,000 out of £243,000. Sir John Lambert, £5,000 out of £72,000. And Mr Edward Gibbon, the grandfather, incidentally, of the famous historian, had £10,000 left out of £106,000 when he was found guilty in his turn. And altogether, from uh, dunning the directors and getting them to pay back in to the company which had collapsed beneath them, that the House of Commons raised two million and fourteen thousand pounds from such fines, and they were able then um, in the spring of that year of seventeen twenty one to pay a dividend to all subscribers a dividend which didn't repay their money but was at least um, very welcome indeed to the people who'd lost it. It was a, a dividend of roughly A third, that is, each person who'd invested 100 pounds got 33 pounds, 6 shillings and 8 pence back uh, in a dividend from the Commons Committee that was now looking after the affairs of of, of the South Sea Company. And those people who had, or those companies which had borrowed from the South Sea Company, were deemed to have discharged their debts Um, if they simply were able to pay back 10% of what they had borrowed. And so, as best they could, the House of Commons um, attempted to not exactly put things right, but put things back as right as they could be um, at the end of this period of extraordinary madness. And... It was extraordinary. While it was going on, there were a few people, such as Walpole, who had sternly spoken out against it and had pointed out that it was a a kind of deliberate, willed insanity that people couldn't see, that there was no actual trading going on and that credit was being stretched beyond its natural limits. And there were others who like Pope actually at the time celebrated in writings or in verse the folly of what was happening. Pope is, as ever, particularly trenchant about that strange period. He writes, At length, corruption, like a general flood, did deluge all and avarice creeping on spread like a low-born mist and hid the sun. Statesmen and patriots plied alike the stocks, peeress and butler shared alike the box, and judges jobbed, and bishops bit the town, and mighty dukes packed cards for half a crown. Britain was sunk in Lucre's sordid charm memorable as ever, Pope. Britain was sunk in in, in Luca's uh, charms for a summer, but I suppose as we're looking at crowds in this series of lectures that there's nothing so extraordinary as the massive fickleness of the crowd. People had rushed to invest in the South Sea Company and they rushed hardly a year later with equal vehemence and equal righteousness, to demand vengeance from exactly the people who they'd willingly given their life savings to a month before. There is nothing so self-righteous or so vindictive as the crowd which has been led to defeat. And there is an interesting postscript to this. The book which is the inspiration for this short series of lectures is a book that I do commend to you. It's a book which is unwittingly funny and a considerable work of scholarship. It's Charles Mackay's Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. It's a book that I've used for all my lectures in the series. It had, in its turn, an enormous impact when it was published in 1841. And a number of the reviewers in the 1840s, when they looked at the way Mackey described the magnus which had fueled the great movements like the movements of the Crusades or the South Sea Bubble or the Mississippi Scheme, which was an equivalent scheme over on the continent, which John Law was responsible for, when they reviewed the book, they tended to take a a rather self-righteous tone, saying that this is a fascinating book by Dr Mackay, but of course he's talking about the unsophisticated past. We would never, in the middle of the sophisticated 19th century, be taken in by Luca's um, sordid charms in the way that they were, a century and a half ago, with the South Sea Company. Well, the book was published in 1841, and the reviewers were saying that sort of thing in 1842 and 1843. In 1844 and 1845 came the great railway mania when the Britishers did it again and poured money into companies that were equally, obviously, just founded upon hot air, or indeed, upon a bubble. Thank you very much indeed for listening. Next week, (laughs) um, in the next two weeks, we're going to look at the last two aspects of um, the madness of crowds. Um, Next week, at Miracle Cures and... Uh, the whole history of strange um, cures and spas and wonder drugs uh, of our own and other centuries and the way people have reacted. And finally, probably the most pertinent of all, we're going to have a short look um, in two weeks' time at the fever of gambling. Thank you. For all information, please visit www.gresham.ac.uk